You heard the passage read a little earlier, but we're going to be zeroing in on just a piece of that passage, so I want to read it to you one more time so it's fresh in your memory as we begin. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord. Father, we pray that as we come to this, your word, that you might illumine it to our hearts and our minds. I pray that the sins of the one who preaches does not diminish the power of your word to save and to refresh and to comfort us. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'll pick up in verse 17 in uh, Matthew 21. And there we find this. Leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. When you pray and when you ask God for something, what do you really expect to happen? And when? If that doesn't seem to play out the way you were hoping, how does that affect you? How does it affect the next time that you go to the Lord in prayer? This passage talks about faith and doubt. How, how much faith do you need to have for it to be effective? How little doubt do you actually need? Can you conjure up more faith if you don't think you have enough? Can you deal with your doubts? What is faith anyway? Can your faith accomplish everything, as this seems to say, or anything? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Also, there are some passages of Scripture, of which this is one, that just don't correspond to our day-to-day experience at all. They just don't register with us. And what do you do when you find things like that in the Word of God? How do you deal with that? Let's take this episode with the fig tree, for instance. I don't know how that struck you, but some people have, uh, in reading that, have thought it kind of reflects on the character of Jesus. The passage says he's hungry. He's out walking. Actually, he's climbing up the backside of a mountain or what we might call a hill. And he sees a fig tree, and the fig tree's got leaves on it. Um, and he goes over there, and there's no fruit. So some people have thought, well, Jesus just gets ticked. He just loses it. He just has an episode, and he curses the fig tree and says, you will bear fruit no more. But 
does that sound like the character of Jesus that you know and the Jesus that you find in scripture? I don't think so. After all, it's not the tree's fault. There's a, there's a parallel passage to this in Mark 11 if you want to look at it at some point. And in there, Mark adds to this, it was not even the season for figs. Do you think Jesus knew that? He wasn't. Was he just being mean to the tree? You think? Uh, well, I don't think so. Uh, Jesus doesn't do anything without a purpose, without something being behind it. So what he's doing here is meant to be some kind of a lesson for his disciples who were following him up the hill uh, and were around him. He's meaning to teach them something, but what exactly is it? It's what we would call an object lesson. He's using everyday objects in the world around us to illustrate something that is spiritual rather than physical and in this world. But what exactly is it? Whatever it is is apparently lost on his disciples. All they want to know is, "Wow, how'd you do that?" You know, like, uh, "Tell us how it worked." Uh, that's what what they seem to be saying here in this passage. Uh, but he's trying to teach them something much more significant. When you have a passage like this that uh, is not immediately clear off the top, one thing you can do is look and see what the context is, right? What is happening around us? We heard some of it earlier. If you go back uh, to the beginning of this chapter, Matthew has recounted to us the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which... uh, He's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy about a king coming to his people in a lowly way, riding on a burrow or a a colt of a donkey. And they're yelling hosannas at him, welcomes and uh, praises they're heaping upon him. What, What exactly are they looking for? If you read elsewhere in the Gospels, you you see that the people of this time were under the oppression of Rome. Rome was occupying their nation, this gigantic empire of Rome that ruled with an iron fist. And they were in the land and they were ruling over the land. And what were they looking for? They were looking for deliverance. They were looking for a king who was going to set up a kingdom like the great warrior King David and deliver them out of the hand of, of Rome. And Jesus, in other passages, finds this rather ironic. But what happens next? Well, Jesus goes to the temple in verse 12, as, as we heard earlier, and he's, he's overturning the tables of these money changers who were just in God's temple trying to make money off of God's commandments of the people to come and worship and give their tithes and offerings. The tithes and offerings had to be in Jewish in the temple currency and these guys were changing money from people that were coming from all over the place and charging them for it. And Jesus is angry with them. He overturns the temples that it's not a den of robbers that they're in but but a house of prayer. 
And blind people and lame people are coming to him a little later and he's healing them. But what's the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the time? Well, they're indignant with him. They just thought that was terrible that uh, children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And and he's... they're upset with him. And he quotes them some scripture. And then he goes out of the city and he goes to Bethany. Well, Bethany is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, which again is, we, we would probably call a hill more than, more than a mountain. He can walk over the top of it and Bethany's over on the other side. So it's in the morning that he's coming back and we have the incidents that we've just read. What happens after that? Uh, he goes back to the temple and people are challenging his authority. You know, where do you get the authority to do these things? They're putting him on the spot, trying to trip him up. And Jesus gives them a couple of parables about what are these parables about? I won't go through them all. They're, they're about the difference between true faith the difference between truly worshiping and understanding the things of God and what we would call hypocrisy. In other words, people who are outwardly religious, but inwardly their hearts are far from God. And that's what he's in the midst of. That's what the whole chapter is about with this centerpiece in the middle that we've just read. When it gets down to verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Does that sound like a a fig tree incident, perhaps? What was wrong with the fig tree? Well, it had leaves on it, which from little I understand about fig trees might indicate that it had fruit also, but there was none, even though it wasn't even the time of year for that. So are there people, what about these people surrounding Jesus? Do they have leaves on them? Do they look like they're religious? Do they look like they're seeking God? But how much fruit are they producing? Jesus is saying, none. That's the problem. So, the fig tree is probably best understood, this object example is as as hypocritical, outward, appearing religion that has no inner reality, that's not producing fruit for the kingdom. And when God curses something or someone, it results in barrenness, fruitlessness, even death, as in the case of the tree. And the flip side is when God blesses people, they produce fruit. And uh, fruit that's recognizable and can be seen in the world. And what is he telling them he, when he says, uh, if you had faith, you could, uh, you could do what has been done to the fig tree. What, what has been done to the fig tree spiritually? What is the example? Jesus is judging this. Jesus is discerning false religion from real religion. He's discerning that which is of God from that which isn't. And he's telling 
his disciples. If you have faith, you will be able to do the same thing as well. So this is, in a large sense, because it's repeated a few times, about faith. And when we talk about faith, because of our culture, we have to take a little time out and talk about what is faith anyway. How does it differ from what the people around you in the culture of El Paso might view it as? You know, I was reading recently and I was reminded uh, of something that Prince Charles said some years ago. Prince Charles is the pretender to the throne of England, but his, uh, his mother's lasting so long he may never get the chance to, to be there. But uh, he said, if I become king, he wanted to change one of his titles. You know, when you become king or queen of England, you get a whole list of titles. And the title that he was concerned about is the King of England is, one of his titles is the Defender of the Faith. And he said, if I become king, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change it to the Defender of Faith. What's the difference? The. Encapsulates the way our culture looks and considers faith. Faith is something, it's a belief or ranges from just wishful thinking, I have faith it'll rain tomorrow. Or a faith in anything that has value just because I believe it. Have you ever heard, well, you know, that person really sincerely believes this and uh, that this is true. Who am I to tell them that it isn't? That's the way our culture might approach it. What are, who are people of faith? Ever hear that term? Generally in the culture, it's people believe, that believe something that's scientifically unprovable, that uh, has really no basis in reality, but it's something they strongly believe. But the faith is something entirely different. The faith once delivered to the saints, as the Bible puts it. It's a, a faith that has content. It's a faith in something specific. It's, uh, you know, sometimes Christians even buy into this otherworldly view of faith. How many times have you uh, heard somebody be questioned, another Christian or perhaps yourself, be questioned about your faith? And what is an answer you often hear? Well, I, I know it's true because Jesus is in my heart. Are you questioning my experiences? Rather than arguing for the rational faith that God has delivered to us in his word, the content of who Jesus is and what he's done in our behalf, that's what biblical faith is. So it has content. The content is the person and the work of God and especially of Jesus and his work for us. And it also involves believing that that's true. Right? It's not just a list of facts out hanging out in nowhere. We also believe in our hearts that these things God has revealed to us are true. But you can't just stop there either. 
because faith is more than just a list of doctrines that we subscribe to, that we believe in our heart. James wrote, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That faith, they believe, they know the facts of who Jesus is, they believe those facts are true, they know all too well they're true, but does that do them any good? No. It's not a faith that saves, certainly. It's not even, have you ever heard anyone say, I believe whatever the church teaches? Ever heard anybody say that? That's just a lazy way of taking somebody else's faith and uh, trying to make it yours. So faith has its real content. It has a knowledge of the truth. Faith believes that that content is true. But there's a third ingredient in biblical faith, and that is simply one of trust. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote this, Faith is not mere belief, but involves a relation to the Word of God that enables people to rest and trust in God. And we might add to find delight in Him as well. So the Reformers emphasize that biblical faith is not just a a confidence in a list of convictions, but it's confidence in a person. Do you trust Jesus? Can you find rest in that trust when things are happening that are out of your control? It's not something you conjure up. It's not something you can uh, work to create more of under your own steam, but it's a gift of God. As the first chapter of Ephesians tells us that we were looking at in part in in Sunday school this morning. Uh, It enables us to trust and rest in Him. And in the passage it adds... Matthew adds, and do not doubt. Well, what's up with that? Uh, You ever have doubts? Nobody? Wow. (laughs) Having, not having doubt is not a special kind of faith. It's an element of faith. If you have faith at all, you have some degree of confidence in that which you believe. That's part of the definition of faith. So it's not a special thing. I I always think of the guy that uh, Jesus says, uh, believe, and he says, I believe. Now help me in my unbelief. Doesn't that describe most of us? Uh, We're not perfect in our faith, and our faith may seem tiny, And how tiny is a grain of mustard seed as Jesus compares it to in one place. Well, while we're doing this, we ought to talk a little bit about another thing. It's a little bit of a digression, but there's something that always accompanies faith when it comes as a gift from God. And that is something we call repentance. So what is that? 
You know, most of us are familiar with Ephesians 2.8 that by grace you've been saved and that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Well, there's another gift that comes with that faith. In the beginning, Jesus came preaching. What did he preach? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He links those together many, many times. They're part and parcel of what does faith look like? It looks like in part like repentance in the world. So what is that? Uh, when uh, the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles, remember Cornelius, Peter Peter has this vision, then he's called over to this Gentile's house and there's a whole room full of people and he tells them about Jesus and they all believe and want to be baptized. And how did Peter describe that to the church back in Jerusalem? He says, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles also. So it's essential to the kind of faith that Bible talks about. Uh, The author of Hebrews calls this an elementary doctrine. So what exactly is it? Well, one way that we can get at the essence of something is to say what it is not. And uh, what it is not is just simply being sorry for your sin. Ever done anything you're sorry for? Nobody? (laughs) I have. (laughs) But what did that sorrow look like? Is it, are you just sorry for your sin because you see what its consequences are in the world around you? Maybe you ended up in jail because of your sin. Uh, that can happen, and you certainly can be sorry for that. Maybe you've seen its effects, the effects of your sin on someone around you or on a relationship that you care about. Sometimes we just laugh it off. It seemed like a good idea at a time. <laughs> In retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or perhaps we're generally sorry and we're really grieved and we're upset and anxious because we see the effects of something we've done play out in the world. Well, that's only a piece of biblical repentance. Biblical repentance goes much farther than that. You may have heard of a 19th century saint called J.C. Ryle, where he's written some great stuff. He kind of nailed this, and I'm just going to pass this on to you. He says, Repentance is a thorough change of a man's natural heart upon the subject of sin. And in an article he that I read, he mentioned five different aspects of it. So here they are. True repentance begins with the knowledge of sin, that it's wicked, that there's guilt associated with it, that it's corruption in the sight of God, not just in the sight in your own eyes. It's over against our thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. My heart's in the right place. It's just, it involves a negation of that. You realize your heart's corrupted and you're not anywhere near as good a person as you thought you were. And in fact, there's not much you can do about it. The scripture says you're dead in these trespasses and sins before Christ comes and does a work in you. Secondly, there's sorrow for sin, but it's remorse over the effect that our sin has on God, that it's Him that we've sinned against. 
that it's it's a, a waste that it deserves God's wrath. You know that's at, what's at the heart of the beatitude. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. It's mourning over sin that's that's in view. The third thing he calls out is it results in confession of sin, primarily to God, because again we're seeing Him as the wounded one. That it's like David when he cries out that against you only you have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Well, he certainly sinned against some people in the world too, but he sees the essence of it as having offended God. And when you truly repent, the fourth thing he notices is that it makes a difference in the world. A person that's truly repented honestly wants to break off from sin and uh, put an end to it. Putting off the old man, putting on the new, all these examples that Scripture uses. And finally, true repentance produces in a heart a, a settled habit towards sin. We view sin differently. We view it as evil and uh, something that we hate. As the psalmist says, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So let me ask you, have you ever experienced or do you experience somewhat red? Uh, repeatedly in your life this kind of repentance repentance it sounds something like that if you can answer that yes from your heart then you should have some assurance that the faith God has given you uh, and this repentance is truly comes from him and you belong to his so be encouraged when you find yourself burdened and repenting in this way of your sin well, let's, let's get back to the text. Uh, he's talking about prayer. And again, I would ask, what do you expect when you pray? Jesus says a wild thing here. He says, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Anyone here withered any trees lately or uh, caused any mountains to be lifted up and thrown into the sea? Have you ever heard of anybody doing that? Has it ever happened? Has anybody ever done that? Well, no. So Jesus, again, must be using figurative language. He must be trying to teach his, something, his disciples something other than the literal picking up of a mountain and throwing it into the sea. Uh, whatever you ask in prayer can't mean just anything, right? Oh, Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all have Porsches. It can't mean that I can just pray for anything I feel like, and God, if I really believe that God's going to do it, He'll do it. Uh, there must be limits on it. And what would those, what would those be? Remember, this is about hypocrisy. This is about false religion. People doing exactly that, praying for things that are not in the will of God. Um, faith 
is necessary because it trusts that God accomplishes that which is impossible with us, like picking up a mountain and throwing it into the sea, but not with him. And wherever he uses these examples, this hyperbole, this exaggeration, it's always in the context of spiritual battles, spiritual realities, things that we can't fix, don't have the power to fix, that are totally beyond our control. Back in Matthew 19, a couple chapters earlier, Jesus interacts with the guy that we sometimes call the rich young ruler. Remember, here's a guy that comes to Jesus and he's under some kind of conviction about sin and he's seeking salvation on some level and uh, Jesus tells him to do some things that he can't quite handle and he walks away turns his back on what Jesus suggests and leaves so how does Jesus explain this to his disciples well in Matthew 19 23 says this Jesus said to his disciples truly I say to you only will with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You may have heard that explained as a gate in Jerusalem where a camel can just barely squeeze through. But I think what Jesus is saying is just what he says. How possible is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? He's saying things that are just totally physically impossible for us. God can do. The disciples get it. They say they're they're astonished. Who then can be saved if not a rich person that has power and influence and everything else? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Well, what are the all things he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual reality. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about changing the heart of someone who's saturated with the world. So, this comment that he makes about all things has to be qualified. First of all, God can never do anything that violates his own character. He can never sin, and he cannot sin. Did you know there are things God cannot do? He cannot violate his own character. So, if you pray for something that's sinful... Don't expect that to uh, result in much. And it's primarily spiritual objectives that are in view. Things that, are, that we can't control, that God himself must do. And what, must be, what we pray will only be answered in line with God's plan, with God's agenda. Sometimes we tack on, well, if it be your will, Lord, uh, then you pray something or other. But we use it kind of like a throwaway line. But, but that's very real. God is not going to grant any prayer that does not align with its will. That's why we need faith. That's why faith is brought out in this passage when the results of our prayers just simply aren't seen. In the parallel passage in Mark, Mark adds some more words of Jesus. He says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it'll be yours. What's that? That's faith, isn't it? It's trusting that God will do what's right and what's good. 
So the power of prayer is not in the magnitude of our faith, whether we have huge faith or little faith. It's not our work. It's a gift of God in the first place. It's not in the eloquence of our prayers or how precise they are or if we're praying for exactly the right thing in the right way, in the right words. No, the power of prayer rests in the one who hears and the one who answers. When you pray and you don't see any results, do you doubt God's power to answer that prayer? Do you doubt his sovereignty? Usually not in our circles. We don't doubt those things. Or do you doubt his goodness? Do you doubt his love for you? His willingness to bless you? These are all the things that caused him to send his son that you might have life and have it abundantly. You know, Jesus prayed so hard in Gethsemane that he sweat blood. And what did he ask? Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He knew what lay ahead. He's asking God to take it away. He adds, yet not what I will, but you will. And I can guarantee it's not a throwaway line. So, did God answer his prayer? (laughs) If so, how? If not, why not? Think about that. You know, God often answers our prayers in ways and at times we don't expect. I'm going to leave you with a little tale. Some years ago, Katie and I had the privilege of going to Israel. And it was before the uh, current level of conflict that's going on there. And we were able to traipse all over the land. And one, one thing we did is walk from Bethany over the top of the Mount of Olives and down into Jerusalem, the, the exact route that Jesus is walking here. And I can tell you when you get up on the backside of the Mount of Olives, there are fig trees. <laughs> now, I don't know if they just planted them for the tourists or if they've been there for thousands of years. Some of, some of them are quite old, but they're there. And so we looked at this passage. But when you get up on the top of that hill, there's quite a view. And if you kind of look in the the southeast, you'll see a mountain, and it's got some Roman ruins on the top of it. In the time of Jesus, Herod, the same Herod that killed off all the young offspring at the time Jesus was born, had used conscripted labor, that means made slaves out of the Israelites, of artisans and laborers, and he took one little mountain and put it on top of another little mountain, and on top of that he built this gigantic pleasure palace, kind of a party place where he would entertain guests in lewd ways. And it became a symbol to the Israelites of the oppression and the decadence of Rome in their midst who was ruling over them. 
And if you look a little farther to the east, you can catch a glimpse of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is this highly mineralized sea. The water in it's not good for much of anything, and in those days they kind of used it as a garbage dump. So the person that was leading us on this tour said, is it hard to believe, since Jesus is in the midst of object lessons here, that with a wave of the hand, he said, you could cause this mountain to be taken up and thrown into the sea. What would that symbolize for the Israelites? The overthrow of Rome. That's what they're looking for, right? They're looking for a king that's going to overthrow Rome. Did Jesus do that when he walked the earth? But 300 years later, there was a Roman Empire who was a Christian, an emperor, Constantine. Christianity became sanctioned by the laws of Rome. It was okay to be a Christian. And not long after that, the Roman Empire was altogether wiped off the face of the earth. Did Jesus answer the prayers of the hearts of the people of his time? But it didn't look anything like what they expected. So whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I do know that you can trust him. So pray as you will. And believe that you have it in Christ. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we consider it, it would change us. We know it still has the power that it had in the beginning and will always have. And that power is you. Amen.